This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Great. Awesome. And this is working too, so everything's connected. Yes. All right. Hi, everyone. Awesome. Yay, an excited room. Well, I'm glad you're excited because we're here to talk about a pretty important topic, user onboarding, the process of acclimating someone into a new product or service. Yes, onboarding, it's that concept that sometimes comes up or we start exploring because it comes with the promise of carrying our new users upwards on the path to retention and engagement. And at some point we might declare, let's design onboarding and we'll start conjuring up images of welcome screens. And we'll ask ourselves, how should we begin with a new user? But I'd like to start us this morning by thinking about the end. I want each of you to think about this question. Where does onboarding currently end in my product today? And as you think about that question, I'll share with you where I used to think onboarding ended. I used to think it ended with a screen like this, something that says you're all set after you set up a piece of software or hardware. Has anyone seen one of these screens before? A fair number of us. And the reason I used to think this is where onboarding ended was because of my first real tech job, I was responsible for creating setup wizards for printers and copiers. I know, real groundbreaking stuff. But I was told this was the most important moment in the customer journey because it could help reduce returns of devices. So I would spend weeks perfecting instructions for how to connect cables into the back of someone's printer. And I would design a beautiful you're all set screen to wish them on their merry futures of these new devices. But of course, as I got into the world of app and web design, I quickly learned that approach didn't scale because digital products are constantly changing Usage scenarios are always evolving and it's very easy for someone to abandon a digital product at any time. So we can't just limit their onboarding to something as short-lived as setup. Yet, that's exactly what many of us do when we set out to design onboarding. We focus so much on solving for the beginning that that's all we build and we end our onboarding experiences too soon, typically with the first run experience. And it's tempting to do that, right? First run is a clearly defined moment in time, something we can guarantee all new users will see at least some part of. So if we do it really well, maybe we can even point to it as a beautiful standalone piece of work in our portfolios. And don't get me wrong, those first time user experiences are important, but not if designing them comes at the expense of long-term support because then we spend all of our resources designing something akin to a new employee's orientation meeting at a new company. It's just a single event presented in a one-size-fits-all manner, and therefore it can only ever achieve short-term logistics, like getting people to sign paperwork. True onboarding, though, is about so much more. It will support people through multiple events in their journeys through our products. It will use diverse methods to help people who are in different situations, also that it can blend into a long-term approach to guidance in our products. 
After all, retention and engagement, those are long-term goals, so we need to get beyond those short-term logistics. In this session this morning, I'll help you make the case back to your teams why we need to invest in building onboarding with longevity. First, by looking at those multiple events over the customer journey during which onboarding can do its job. Now, when it comes to onboarding's job, many of us think of this, that it needs to familiarize someone with a product or service. Does this definition resonate with any of you? Yeah, a few folks, a few hands didn't go up, and maybe that's because you're thinking of some other things it needs to do. That's true, onboarding has more than one job. It also needs to learn about a new user in order to create an experience tailored to their needs. Sometimes it needs to get them into a converted state, whether that means helping them sign up, subscribe, or otherwise make a commitment. And it needs to guide their progress to become, becoming successful, engaged, and retained individuals. That's an insurmountable list of to-dos if only given the narrow window of first run in which to do them. That's something good employers recognize when they design new hire onboarding programs. They'll design activities in terms of months, not minutes. And so similarly, we need to think about ways to break onboarding out of that narrow window of first run so it can do these jobs more effectively. So let's take a look at just one product trying to do just that. Here's how Lumosity, a brain training website, tackles onboarding users beyond the first run. It starts out with three interactive starter games aimed at familiarizing <clears throat> the new user with its technique of training mental skills. Each game familiarizes them with the skill it's helping them train, the mechanics of playing each game, and then recaps more information about the skill that was trained at the end. And these three games are used so that Lumosity can learn about the person's current baseline score. Like how I really didn't do well at color matching in this particular example. And it does that so that it can show the different ways its product can help them improve that score with a strong call to action to sign up for their paid subscription plan but they rightfully plan that people may not be ready to make that commitment after just the first run experience. So their onboarding accounts for this. The next day, if you haven't signed up, you'll get an email recapping the prior day's scores and inviting you to take another day of free training. As you complete subsequent days of free training, the information in your recap screens continues evolving so that it can show you the different ways that subscription plan might help you improve those scores. Again, all aimed at trying to get people into that converted, signed up state. But even after someone makes a commitment, these onboarding techniques don't stop. Immediately after signing up, the user is now engaged in three additional games that they've unlocked by making a commitment. And throughout their experience, the product guides them through other things that they can experience and unlock with repeat use. Now another thing you might have seen across some of these examples is how frequently Lumosity talks about the different skills that it's helping people train. And that's because they know that people will be more motivated to return to the product if they understand the importance of those skills that they are training. And they likely know if they were to only share that information a single time, they'd be up against a pretty steep forgetting curve. This curve was discovered in the 1880s by German psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus, who found immediately after you learn something, 
you begin forgetting it. And after your first day of exposure, you're lucky if you remember one-third. Now luckily for us, Ebbinghaus found a way to hack that forgetting curve by repeating exposure to the initial learning when distributed at intervals spaced out over time. In the teaching world, this is referred to as spaced repetition. In the product world, it all comes down to reinforcing our core concepts or core actions over time to maximize retention. And it's another good reason why onboarding needs more than the first run to be effective. Now all those techniques that we looked at for new user onboarding can also benefit people at other points in their journeys through our products. For example, they can help enhance the experiences of our maturing users by creating an environment for continued discovery of new or existing features. Here's an example from Etsy. A few years ago, they introduced a new feature to sellers called Pattern. Pattern allows sellers to create a custom website design for their shops. So they had an inline element on the seller dashboard that helped engage them in a mini onboarding flow for this feature. If the seller clicked on this, they would see existing shop items are being imported into a landing page for this pattern feature, which familiarizes them with the different things they can customize and guides them through the process of selecting a theme, previewing that theme, and getting them into a state where they could convert into a free trial so they could start testing things out for themselves. Now sometimes we aren't just introducing people to new or existing features. Sometimes we might be redesigning our product in such a way that core workflows could be altered. Onboarding techniques are necessary in this case as well to help guide people, user, people through those change. That's something the Google Drive team recognized a few years ago when it had to migrate existing Google Docs users to the new Drive client. This is something they captured in a white paper called Minimizing Change Aversion for the Google Drive Launch. And Hendrik talked about this a few years ago at UX Australia as he discussed the different tips and techniques on how to minimize this change aversion. And they sound somewhat familiar to some of those that we might use for new user onboarding. Like the need to familiarize somebody with an impending change before it happens. And guiding them between the differences of the old and new versions. And taking time to learn from any users who opt in early so that you could improve the final version of the redesign for everyone. And sometimes you may have cases where users are returning from a lapse in use and onboarding techniques can help here as well. For example, sometimes a long lapse in use is a natural part of a product's usage cycle. Like how some people only return to tax preparation software one time a year. In this case from TurboTax, I'd return to it from a year of non-use. So it takes a moment to just let me know about some differences in this year's version compared to the version I used last year. And also takes a moment to learn what has changed in my own life so it could update its recommended flows. So onboarding techniques can help new and existing users through many events in their journeys through our products. 
And being able to plan for these and visualize them as we set out to design new user onboarding will ensure that we choose methods that will scale and be valuable beyond that first run. But it's not just enough to cover multiple events across the customer journey. Good onboarding also needs to use diverse methods to suit people who are in different situations. And that's because the path to onboarding is not a fixed one that's going to be followed the same way by every person. You may design something perfect that goes from point A to point B, but you'll quickly find that maybe person one needs a lot more support than you planned for. Or that person two breezes right through. Or that person three, uh, they want to take a roundabout approach to things. And that's okay. These paths will naturally vary because of different user expectations, backgrounds with a product or service, and the different ways in which people prefer to take in new information. And what teaching experts like Linda Nilsson remind us of is that people just learn new material best if they can encounter it multiple times and through multiple modalities. That's great news for us because it means we don't have to waste our time trying to find a one-size-fits-all flow that works for everyone. It just means that we need to invest in a bit of a diverse toolkit of onboarding methods to help these users who are in different situations. Let me walk you through five categories of onboarding guidance that I've found can help us diversify our approach. The first category is the most critical and foundational. This is the category of default experiences. We need to carefully consider what the initial state of a product or feature is communicating to somebody who's seeing it for the first time. For content-focused experiences, it all comes down to that information architecture. This is a website called The Perspective, and it claims to offer two sides to every story. And we can see by the way they have organized and presented the content on this site, they have implied that purpose without an explicit onboarding experience needing to be layered on top of it. Now for more task-based experiences, it comes down to those empty states. This is a product called Airwander. It tries to help you find an ideal stopover between two travel points. And so they start out with an empty state that shows you the skeleton of information that you need to fill in so that you can activate that central stopover selection box. And default settings can also be powerful. As Jared Spool found on a study done of users of desktop computers, he found that less than 5% of them may have ever changed their default settings. So, if we pick the right defaults, we can set people up for success. But it does mean if we pick the wrong defaults, we could set them up for failure. So we need to spend a lot of time making sure there's a strong foundation here before we add in other kinds of guidance. Now once that foundation is in place, then you can get into those other categories of guidance, like inline guidance, when you weave it into the flow of surrounding content. Here's an example from Nextdoor which is a community feed product, and someone has just joined a neighborhood and created their profile. There's some more steps they can take to augment that profile, 
but next door shows those steps as prompts in line with their neighborhood feed so that this new user can get into the product, scroll through, see what their neighbors are talking about before they commit to any more steps in adding to their profile. Now the third category of guidance is reactive guidance. When you show something in direct response to user action. This one embraces a very learning by doing approach. Here's an example from Google Drive. Someone has grabbed files from their desktop and they're hovering them over the web client. And there's a little reactive hint that appears at the bottom, letting them know as soon as they release those files, they will be uploaded to the folder in view. And this is one example of how you can use reactive guidance to educate somebody who might not have been familiar with something without interrupting or annoying somebody who already was. Now the complement to proactive guidance is going, or reactive guidance is going to be proactive guidance. And that's when you try to show something in advance of anticipated user need. It typically takes the form of something a bit more prominent or directed. But this category is not a free pass to do a bunch of pop-up overlays that get in people's way. No, good proactive guidance will still feel like a natural extension of the product it's a part of. For example, here we have Duolingo, a language learning product, and someone has just selected the language they want to start learning. They are proactively directed down one of two paths, either to take a placement test or to take their first lesson. And that's so Duolingo can get those new users as quickly as possible into its interactive lesson-taking tool. They know this is the thing that will engage people and motivate them to return to the product later. But once you're in this state, you can actually exit out and end up on the default empty state of the user dashboard and come back to this at another time. But again, by being proactive and trying to direct people down one of those two paths at the start, Duolingo's is tempting to set people up for success. And finally, no matter how much we might try to predict when and where people need guidance, we will inevitably miss something. And that's okay, as long as we have a centralized resource for on-demand help. That means pooling together any customer service links, help articles, forums, discussions, anything like that into one accessible entry point. And even better is if you can highlight where people can find this as part of their initial onboarding to your product. So a diverse onboarding toolkit will be comprised of more than one technique. And by having multiple methods at our disposal, we will have a series of backup solutions that can hand off to each other if people don't behave the way we might have predicted. And in this way, onboarding becomes more accessible and behaves less like a rigid path and more like a compass that helps users in different situations get to the same destination of success. So supporting multiple events across the customer journey and using diverse methods will help us create onboarding that has long-term benefit in our products. And that brings me back to the question I posed at the beginning of today's session. Where does onboarding end? This is a question I not only want you to think about throughout the rest of this conference, but to bring back to your teams 
ask it at the start or during any onboarding-related design project. You'll quickly find everyone may have a slightly different definition of when onboarding should end. And it might vary between user to user of your product or feature to feature, and it might spark some pretty serious debate. And that's okay, because it's those differences that will help you illustrate to your teams why. You can't just design onboarding for the first run, but why you have to design onboarding to carry your users for the long run. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.